Good morning. All right, I got green light. Can we hear me? Hey, that's good. I like green light. Why don't we start off? We need to get set up here. Why don't I open us up in prayer before we open up this morning? Our God, we love you. We thank you so much for the work that you do in our hearts. I just pray that you would give us understanding of, of your desire, um, of what you want to do and how you want to do it. We've covered a lot of ground going through the book of Ephesians, God, about what it means to be raised with you, be, to be separate from the world. And I pray that this morning as we get in through this second portion of Ephesians 5 that you would really speak to our hearts, speak to my heart, even as I'm up here, God, and I pray that your words would be communicated in the way that you want. Thank you so much for the way that you work through uh, Felipe, Molly, and Derek, and the music that you put on their hearts, God. You are holy, and, and above all else, God, we live our lives just to get a better understanding of, of your holiness and what that means to us. So work in our hearts as a whole body this morning and prepare us for action in our minds and in our spirits. And we pray this in your name. Amen. This uh, weekend, I had the privilege of putting in sprinklers again, which I love to do. PVC is one of God's many gifts, and I, I think my kids probably think I love to do it so much, that's why I keep doing it. Um, and I had my lawn pretty well situated, and the snow came and, and uh, dropped a tree in the middle of my lawn, and, and then I lost it all, and that start over. So I, I love sprinklers, and I, I got the joy of, of working on that again this weekend. Um, one of the other joys I love about putting a lawn in, though, is that I get to get this clean, beautiful fill dirt, whatever it might be. And the miracle of getting that clean dirt in, and you don't get it seeded in time, and no matter how clean that dirt is, you're going you're gonna to have some weeds. So I didn't get my seed in, so I had all sorts of weeds to get out of my perfect dirt that was advertised as clean. I'm just kidding. I didn't pick on my kids. Um, I, I stuck them on their job. That's the benefit about having little helpers. Did we lose my mic? Sound guy has his hands up in the air. Just let me know if I need to go back to this. I won't move today, I promise. Hello? Okay. All right. Fine. I'm going to limit my range of motion. I can't walk down the aisle now. 
stay up here. Can't do my calisthenics. All right, just tell me if you want me to go back. Anyways, um, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, I was complaining about weeds. Um, that's what you guys want to hear this morning. So, uh, it, it's it, uh, what I was saying. It's just the irony of how clean the dirt that you get. It doesn't, doesn't matter how clean the dirt is. No matter what, something's going to sprout up. And naturally, it's never something good. I have never bought clean fill dirt and had beautiful fruit trees grow out of it for some reason. I've never had anything productive come from it. Um, a few years back, I think, maybe a, a year or so back, I, I went through a series on Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and we kind of just went into uh, the fall of man. And in that moment that Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit, the moment that sin first entered into the world, the very first time to look at the effects of the sin nature on mankind. Um, and without going back into that too much, it's, it's interesting when we look at that, that the fullness of the sin nature was like a light switch that came on in its fullness right away. Sometimes we feel like the sin nature has grown over time, and sin has gotten so much worse. We need to understand that the nature was fully manifested from that moment. It was a moment from light straight into darkness. And when the, the point that I went through in that series was if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you can track it immediately. It was like an explosion hit where their, their character, their mindset was completely different in the way that they responded to each other and to God. Um, if anything, I would say that the sin nature was more concentrated at the very beginning. But over time, uh, humanity has actually learned how to manage the sin nature, how to, uh, to cover, to dress it up, uh, to make all the ugliness of sin and the sin nature more palpable. Um, and we do that through good behavior. And I, Christians do it. Unbelievers do it. We've learned how to cover the ugliness of sin. Genesis 3, verse 17. When the sin ha happens there in the beginning, God says, cursed, speaking to Adam at this point, he goes through all of the different um, effects of sin entering into the world and the punishments therein. But to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. That's right, Adam, you hear that? Because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now, I don't read that because I'm bitter about the thorns and the thistles. I read that because it's interesting that, that the curse of thorns and thistles coming up from the ground and having to work for it was, was not only a physical curse to Adam that he had to deal with, but it is also a perfect image of how the curse and the sin nature works in everything. Because in this statement, um, we realize that everything, how, how far everything de departed from God's original intent. See, God created plants with purpose, right? Every plant had a, had a, a purpose, whether it was for beauty or whether it was for fruit or nourishment or shade, whatever it might have been. Plants were were created for a purpose. 
and they fell in line with their purpose automatically. So when God says, now it's going to be different, all right? Now the ground's not just going to produce beauty, nourishment, and fruit. Now the ground is going to produce weeds and thorns and thistles. Thorns, thistles, and crabgrass, I think is what my translation says. See, the post-curse, the ground doesn't produce fruit on its own. It's naturally, by nature, going to produce uselessness. Because that's what weeds are, right? Um, a weed essentially, is essentially uh, a useless plant that takes the nourishment from the useful plants. It steals the nutrients and a weed essentially survives for itself. Now, the ground can be tamed again to produce beauty. I mean, think of some beautiful gardens. Some ladies in this church have some beautiful gardens. As a kid, I remember going to Bouchard Gardens in Canada, Victoria, and it stood out in my mind. It was beautiful what people can do with the ground and the soil. Um, how that soil can be tamed to produce beauty. But since the curse, the beauty and the purpose only can it be achieved by work and continual maintenance. You see the spiritual connection to what I'm saying of how this curse works in us. See, the nature of flesh is always going to default to sin, to selfishness, uselessness, and pain. And left alone, the sin nature will never produce anything righteous or honorable. Am I still okay on this mic, Dan? Is everybody hearing me okay? It sounds different, so I don't know. By means of hard work and continuous maintenance, uh, the sin nature can also be tamed, kept under control. It could be made to look more beautiful than it actually is on the surface. But, and here's the key, even if a garden goes 20 years, 40 years, however long, without having one single visible weed, guess what's going to happen if it's left unattended for one week? See, whether it's 20 years or not, Hello? Look at that. I'm good at charades. Dan was playing charades with me back there. I'm actually not very good at charades if we played. Um, whether it's gone 20 years or not, here's the, here's the kicker to the explanation. Whether a garden has gone 20 years or not with no weed that's visible, it doesn't mean that it's no longer susceptible to weeds growing. Okay? Because you can keep the weeds from growing, but you can't keep the weeds from wanting to grow. And the wanting is the key to the definition of the sin nature. It's the wanting that's the description of the sinful state, because even if you want to manage your sinful impulses, you can never purge the desire to sin from within your heart. 
And it's the desire that reveals to us how broken and how fallen we are. Sinful nature isn't manifest in the fact that we do bad things, but in the fact that we desire to do bad things. That's how, <clears throat> that's how deep it goes. It reveals to us how broken and how fallen we are from God's intent for us, namely, to produce nourishment, beauty, and to glorify Him without having to work at it. That's the intent of God. To produce nourishment, beauty, and to glorify God without having to work at it. From our nature. Now, the danger in the Christian life, and mind you, if I... If it seems like I'm repeating myself over the last couple weeks in different ways, um, that's good. Because I am. <laughs> and that means something's sticking. The danger is that the Christian can produce a really clean garden, so to speak, with no produce. See what I did there? Probably a better wordplay than it was a picture. But we have, we have to understand how this works, because I've given several examples in the last few weeks. We use the image of power, and last week we used the imagery of light, but no matter how we describe it, the point is always the same, that the power of the Christian life does not come from a power that God gives to us. The power of the Christian life is Christ within us. And last week we talked about light. The light versus darkness. The light of the Christian life is not based upon a light that he gives to us, but based upon the fact that the light dwells within us. It is Christ. And this week we talk about fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is much different than the fruits of the Spirit. And oftentimes we think they're the same. Oh, the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. No, there's a big difference between what is the fruits and what is the fruit. Because one implies, when you say that I'm exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, that's something that I'm trying to do. But the fruit of the Spirit, though it may sound like I'm saying the same thing, means that it's the effects of the Spirit living within me. Namely, the fruit is Him. All of those character qualities are not things that I put on. All those character qualities are a description of what the life of Christ is inside of me. The power of the Christian life is Christ. There is only one who can live the Christian life, and that is Christ. And I keep repeating that. Christ lives the Christian life within you. It is not something that we mimic or that we copy I want you guys to think, when we're talking about the sin nature that is exhibited in our hearts, think of the I will nature of sin. And when I say the I will nature, I'm referencing, uh, there are five I will statements that you're probably familiar with that Lucifer said. You could find them in Isaiah chapter 14, 13 through 14. What this is, is essentially Lucifer's declaration of independence, so to speak. 
He says, I will ascend into heaven. Two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Three, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. Four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And five, I will be like the Most High. Now, um, we don't like being associated with Lucifer. But the fact is, the description of his attitude is the description of the same sin nature that we deal with. Because the appeal of the sin nature is a spirit of independence from external authority, namely God. Because Lucifer decided that he wanted to live independently from authority of a higher power. And he exhibits that attitude in these I will statements. Finally, I will be like the Most High on my own. It was an issue of, of, moral, of morality more than anything, of what he wanted to be. It's interesting, though, that there's a contrast. The nature of the flesh and the sin nature, both in Lucifer and in our hearts, is exhibited in I will. Whereas, on the contrast, the nature of Christ is I am. You see that? It's the I will versus the I am. Sinful flesh is based upon what I am going to do, what I will do, but the nature of Christ within me is defined by his personhood. That's the intent. Because he didn't create human doings, he created human beings. And it's all about what he wants to be within us. So, with that in mind, we're going to get back into our text in Ephesians chapter 5. Thank you, Luke, for reading that this morning. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. I like what, how Luke's version said, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we get into this text, I want to first point out, the first thing that, I, that caught my attention is the first contrasting statement of do not be unwise. And then it kind of repeats it, do not be foolish, but understand what the will is, what the Lord is. And I, I'll give you a heads up. Whenever you see a contrasting statement, in Ephesians or in any of these books where it's contrasting that which is 
the former life and that which is the life that is raised with Christ. The, the flesh and the spirit. Look closely because you might find that the imagery that Paul uses might have a lot of hidden, very powerful theological concepts in it. But it's interesting in this one, he says, don't be unwise, don't be foolish. And the answer to me, if you're thinking like me, kind of leaves you with an open-ended question. Don't be wise, don't be foolish. And the contrast is, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now that should be easy, right? I think we've all got a handle on that. Does that provide a question to anybody? How do I understand what the will of the Lord is? It's interesting. When you have a command in the Bible without a solution, then it leaves you powerless. See, a command by itself does not give you power to accomplish that. If I wake up in the morning and I tell myself, Today, I'm going to be humble. Well, that in itself does not mean that I'm going to be humble. If I were to tell my son, stop being angry, which I've never done. Just kidding. No Father of the Year award going out here. If I were to tell my son, stop being angry, does that give my son any power to accomplish that? No. All I have really done is revealed to him that he's incapable of meeting my required standard. Right? The, the command does not give you power to accomplish it. The power to accomplish the command is always based in relationship of some sort. It'd be a lot different if I were, if I were to teach my son. If I were to talk to him to try to explain to him Help him navigate the emotions that he's dealing with. What are you feeling? What causes that to happen? What sparks the anger within you? Talk him through it. Give him an understanding of what's happening. See, relationship is a whole lot different and it feeds power. I believe that the answer to this command statement here, along with all of these command statements, the appearance of the command statements in this Ephesians 5 and 4, I believe that the following verse and the following statement really provides an imagery where it does reveal that power. The next imagery, the next contrasting statement says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now here's a verse that's often passed over or... Um, disregarded, maybe misunderstood. Um, oftentimes, we lump this verse in just with all the rest of the, of the um, statements and the end of four onto the rest of the book. And we add it to the moral list of what a Christian is supposed to do. Uh, don't drink. Don't get drunk. Don't drink, don't chew, don't hang with girls who do. Right? But here's the thing. This statement, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There is, there is two parts that are important to understand, because 
Paul in this entire section from the end of 4 on to the rest of the book, yes, he is laying out the contrast between the, the life of the flesh, the life that is walking in darkness as we talked about last week, and the life that is raised with Christ, the life that is living by the Spirit. And so he's going through these contrasting statements of what this looks like versus what this looks like. And the life that is raised with Christ should not have these things in it. And so this is a very powerful one in that sense because a couple weeks ago as Patrick went through the times that these people are living in, was a, this was a time when, when, yes, drunkenness, immorality, debauchery, it was, it was rampant. Sexual immorality and all sorts of things of the like. It was the, the societal norm. And so he's saying there, is a, there should be a distinct contrast in, in how our lives look, that it should not be exhibiting these characteristics like the world has around you. But Paul's real big on imagery, which I like because so am I. And in this comparison of drunkenness to the Spirit, I think he also puts the key forward. It's, I would say this is like the Rosetta Stone of this entire passage here, because it helps interpret how all of these pieces fit together, of what it means to walk in the Spirit, what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. Let me explain what I mean. The real question is, is what is filling you that it's addressing here? It really comes down to control. The reason why this verse gives such power, powerful insight is that these two concepts, drunkenness and being filled by the Spirit, they really act in the same way. And they just go in opposite directions. Never thought you could learn so much from drunkenness about spirituality, huh? Oftentimes, the Bible lays out a picture, imagery, that helps you understand how the spiritual concept fits together. So I, what I want to do is I, I, I want to dive into the concept and the imagery of, of drunkenness but maybe in a way that you haven't thought of before. And um, what I want to do is I want to compare how, how drunkenness affects the flesh versus how the Spirit affects the life of Christ and the heart of Christ. And now I realize and I'm aware that um, alcohol can be a sensitive topic in a lot of ways. Um, I realize that there might be some painful memories associated with alcohol abuse. And I realize that some of it might be a sensitive part of your past. I would ask, I want to handle it sensitively, but I, I would ask that, that you look past the substance to the greater picture of the contrast between the flesh and the spirit to see the powerful clarity that it brings to our understanding of what it means to walk in the Spirit. And just for reference sake, from this point on, when I speak of, of alcohol, I'm speaking of drunkenness, because that's the image that Paul is laying out here in the Scriptures, of being controlled 
and the level of drunkenness versus being controlled by the Spirit. Think about the effects of alcohol. 500,000 cases of alcohol violence each year. 86% of homicides are alcohol-related. 60% of sexual abuse cases, etc. That's not where I'm going with this, is to expose the dangers and the effects of alcohol in the sense today. But what I will say about that is that it's interesting, in all of this, these statistics on alcohol, um, and none of these cases is alcohol ever held accountable, right? It's never put on trial because alcohol itself cannot make you do anything on its own. Drunkenness does not make you do something. Drunkenness and alcohol does not place evil within the heart of man. But what it does, and think with me carefully on this, what it does do is that it exposes and empowers the heart of man. And I want you to think spiritually through this as, as we talk about this. See, as we talked about in the beginning, we are born into this world ripe with a sin nature. Selfishness, anger, jealousy, all of this is bubbling up from the very start. I got four kids, I know. Starts early. <laughs> as you grow, you learn certain social constructs that limit the expression of the sinful nature. As kids grow up, they learn, oh, I can't hit somebody when I feel like hitting them. Oh, I can't say what I want to say. You know, that person's fat. I can't say they're fat. I learned that, right? You learn certain social things that are acceptable and that are not acceptable. Kids don't have that filter, all right? You grow and you learn how to, how to suppress that sinful nature. Did I yell too loud? Did I, I break it? Oh, charades again. Okay, we're just going to go with this. <clears throat> anyway, so um, you grow up and you learn how to... Should I turn this off? I'm going to turn it off. Is this better? I like that. As you grow up, you learn how to tidy up. And you learn what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And so the sin nature that's inside of you, you, you learn to keep it within inside of you. The unbelieving person knows how to keep it within inside of them because there are things that are not acceptable. And it is never okay to exhibit what your flesh wants to do publicly. Right? You tidy it up. But now alcohol, what it does, drunkenness, is it essentially, by diminishing those blockers in your brain, it releases the flesh from these social constructs and barriers. It breaks down the walls so that the flesh is essentially free to express itself in whatever way that it wants to without fear of consequences, future, reputation, thought of any harm, that it might inflict upon itself or upon others. It's interesting. And, and we get used to this in society. You hear about it a lot. It's, it's treated as humorous a lot of times. 
Um, but what drunkenness really, really does, although, although oftentimes it's considered that somebody becomes a different person on alcohol, what, what really it does is it reduces a person to what they are on the inside. Now, to an, an arson, there's a term that's very key. Some of you might be familiar with the term of an accelerant, okay? And when there's a suspicious fire, the investigators are looking for signs of an accelerant. Basically, what an accelerant is what an arson would use to amplify the fire, the different forms that they might use. But to increase the potency of the fire, to cause more destruction in a shorter time period and in certain areas. Um, but what's interesting is that an accelerant doesn't create the fire. What an accelerant does is it just amplifies it. Fire itself is destructive, and fire is going to do damage. And fire will destroy, but an accelerant amplifies that. Drunkenness is essentially like an accelerant. It just amplifies what's already bubbling up inside of the heart of the individual. You think about how the flesh is exhibited in drunkenness. You have what you would call the happy drunk. Becomes in a state of drunken merriment, right? Where all the worries and the cares of the day and the life are pushed aside. It covers it. They're gone and you're able to enjoy a night of fun. It doesn't fix the problem, but it allows you to ignore them. You're also going to see the rude drunk that's not very careful of their words, doesn't have a filter on the way that they speak. All of a sudden, those things that they keep hidden within their heart might come out. You're also going to have a selfish drunk, you might have an angry or violent drunk. But one thing that you're never going to find, interestingly enough, is a selfless servant drunk. I've never seen one. It's interesting that the drunkenness gives power to the flesh. It gives the flesh the authority to make the decisions without fear of consequences. Okay, and I think this is what's so important. The entire reason why I'm going into this is because it gives us such an understanding of how the Spirit works within us, how we surrender our lives over to the Spirit. The contrast here, being drunk with wine essentially is giving authority to the sinful nature to do what it wants to do. The result and this passage leads ultimately to debauchery, which by definition is excessive indulgence and in sinful practice. Excessful indulgence in the sin nature. Being filled with the Spirit, in contrast, is giving authority to Christ's nature to allow it to do what he wants to do. Potently different, opposite directions. One empowers the flesh and one empowers the heart of Christ. 
This is the contrast that Paul's laying out here. There's a reason why he chose to put the contrast of, of, of drunkenness to the Spirit. One is literally the outward manifestation of the flesh. The other is the outward manifestation of Christ in the heart of the believer. The result and the end could not be more different between the two. In whatever way, um, alcohol, drunkenness can be used as an escape. But the escape doesn't fix any problems. Just like the flesh does not fix anything. The flesh's reaction is to cover, to hide, to lie, like what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Alcohol opens up the same characteristics. doesn't fix it, but can make it go away for a night. There's a difference between giving yourself away, and surrendering yourself. I want to read something from Oswald Chambers about the difference between how the flesh, where the flesh takes us, where the sin nature takes us, versus where the Spirit of God takes us, because it's powerful to see the difference. He says, God will continually, oops, God will continually say to you, friend, come up even higher. There is also a continuing rule in temptation which calls you to go higher. But when you do, you only encounter other temptations and character traits. You see, both God and Satan use the same strategy of elevation. But Satan uses it in temptation. And the effect is quite different. Because when the devil elevates you to a certain place, he causes you to fasten your idea of what holiness is far beyond what flesh and blood could ever achieve. And at the ultimate extent of the flesh, your life becomes a spiritual acrobatic performance, elevated high atop a steeple. You cling to it, trying to maintain your balance and daring not to move. But when God elevates you by his grace into heavenly places, you find a vast plateau where you can move about with ease. This is the contrast between the two. Where sin takes you, where the nature of sin takes you, is higher and higher and higher. And just like the imagery of a steeple, the higher you go, the less room you have to move. Confining yourself in your lies, in your deceit, whatever it might be, when God raises you, he raises you to freedom. Amen? The end of alcoholism, what would be called the drunkard, is consumed by the sin nature, day and night, completely self-serving, and unable to function in either reality. The end of spirituality consumed by the heart and the nature of Christ, day and night completely selfless, possessing a true and eternal understanding of both realities. 
There's two more things that I want to point out in this comparison between the spirit and drunkenness. I want you to think about heart issues that lead to drunkenness, the tools that bring you to that point. It could be influence from a friend or friends, a good time, a good party, the people you hang out with. Sometimes it could be depression. It could be a celebration. It could be loneliness. Whatever it might be, you could think it in your mind. But if you flip that, here's the exciting part. You flip that around to the Spirit. And the Spirit loves to work in all of these same circumstances. Every one of them. Think about, can proper influences, can good Christian friends, can they bring you to the Spirit to a point of surrendering your authority? Can God use them? How about depression? Can God use depression to bring you to the Spirit? To a point of surrendering yourself to Him? God loves to work in the heart. God knows the heart, and these are the things that He works in the same way. But He wants to bring healing. He doesn't want to make it go away. What about a celebration? That's not something that Christians do. Skip that one, right? No. What does it say in the verse after? The effects, the entire effects of the Spirit within you is that you're going to be singing, rejoicing in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. That's a party. Singing, making melodies. Okay? The Spirit is all about celebration. The last thing that I want to point out is the point of decision of drunkenness. Because the interesting thing, the last correlation that I want to bring out today is that nobody gets drunk from a sip. Right? It takes a conscience point of decision to place oneself under that influence. And it goes the same on the flip side. It's night and day. There's a decision to go from dabbling to diving in. A decision to surrender one's authority. The real question is who has the right to rule. And that is where we're going to be going next week. Looking at the idea of who has the right to rule our hearts. I want to close out with one quote. One idea to prep our way for that. You guys might be familiar, um, in the book of Joshua, right before Joshua and the people um, went into the land of uh, Jericho, city of Jericho, before the walls came tumbling down, um, that before they went there, Joshua met with the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And he had this confrontation with him. But I want to read this from this book, which significantly is titled, Who Has the Right to Rule? Significantly, before the walls of Jericho fell, Joshua fell before the Lord and saith unto him, What 
saith the Lord unto his servant. Joshua 5.14 The battle of Jericho was actually won, not when the walls came tumbling down, but when Joshua surrendered his life to the captain of the host of the Lord. The Lord has no problem bringing down the walls of the Jerichos in your life, but he first wants to bring your wills into total submission and complete obedience to him. Victory in the Christian life does not come when I conquer the enemy or even conquer sin, but when Jesus Christ conquers me. And that's the sum of of it all. Paul gives a very key distinction. Don't be drunk with wine. That leads to the expression of the flesh. The contrast is, submit yourself, your heart, your desires, to the authority of him who has the right to rule. Let him conquer you. And then we could start doing some work. Why don't we pray? Lord God, we thank you so much. We love you and we thank you for for guiding us through the concepts of your word. We thank you for giving us power to accompany your commands for not leaving us hanging, incapable of accomplishing your desire, God. Thank you that you not only gave us power, God, you provided a way that we may have you within our hearts. We love you, and we just pray that this week you would help us to consciously be aware of the decisions that we make, that we would submit to your spirit and the leading that you place on our lives. Amen.